This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. So I want to do a little experiment this morning. Think about this question. How would you complete this sentence? The world needs more blank. How would you fill in that sentence? Here's what I've been thinking about lately. The world needs more moo-moos. M-U-M-U. It's not a cow. It's not a woman's item of clothing. A moo-moo comes from the western highlands of Papua New Guinea where my son and his family live. A moo-moo is a day-long, two-day-long, three-day-long, week-long festival, feast, celebration in which the entire village is invited to come. So here's what you need to have a moo-moo. First, you need a, a purpose, and they can think of almost any reason to have a moo-moo. Um, you need a wedding. You need somebody moving here. You need somebody going away, moving. My son's mentor, a doctor that was there for 18 years, they had a 30-pig moo-moo when he left. That was a massive moo-moo. Secondly, what you need is a host or a hostess or a team of hosts and hostesses, usually the village leaders, the tribal leaders. And then you need the feast. So first you need to kill the fatted pig, a massive four or 500 pound pig. These things just roam around everywhere, eating food so they can get massive, so they can be slaughtered for the moo-moo. And then you take the pig meat, and you take fresh fruit, fruits and vegetables, and you wrap them in banana leaves, and then you dig a huge pit in the ground, like an underground sauna, and you put heated rocks in there. And then you layer the layers of things wrapped with the banana leaves, and you cover it, and you cook it all day long. And then while they're Cooking, they play, and they dance, and they play musical instruments, and they tell stories, and they hang out together as a village, as a tribe. Doesn't that sound great? And then when the food comes, everybody from a 300-pound big man to a small little girl gets exactly the same portion of food, which I'm not sure if they, they think of it this way, but to me that says everybody matters. Everybody's important. Everybody welcomes here. Everybody in this whole village is a person who needs to be here. So when I say that we need more moo-moos, I'm talking about the, what we would call the advanced, technological, sophisticated Western world. We need more moo-moos because we have so much stuff, and yet our lives are so disconnected. We lack a sense of communal connection and celebration and moo-moo-ness, and we've become politically fragmented and socially isolated, so much so that the former U.S. Surgeon General said that he had identified the worst thing for health in our age today. You know what it is? It's not smoking. It's not heart disease. It's loneliness, he said. We have an epidemic of loneliness. Oh, the price we've paid for not knowing how to moo-moo, or our cultural equivalent of a moo-moo. I imagine some primitive, and I'm using that in quotes, some primitive, primitive in quotes again, non-advanced person from Papua New Guinea or maybe Joss, Nigeria, standing before us and saying, you in the West, you have so much. You have so many resources. You have so much technology. You have so many things that are flashy and new. You have so much money, but 
you have lost something precious. And with it, you've lost your joy. You need the wine that Jesus offers you. You need to learn how to join him in his church in celebration. So we look at our Bible story together. That's exactly what Jesus is going to offer in the first public thing that he does in the Gospel of John. And I'd like to ask you to turn there with me or look at your pew Bibles if you want to follow along because we're going to look at this together and walk through this story and take a journey together through this story. It's found on page 887 in your pew Bible. And you'll notice that when Jesus plans his mumu, there are three essential ingredients. There is a host, first of all, and then secondly, there is also a, there's also a purpose for this. And then third, there is wine. Wine is what the host provides. So first, there's the host. So here's the thing about Jesus as a host that's really surprising. It's not surprising that he's the host because this is a gospel story that focuses on Jesus. But, but what's surprising is that he's such a humble host. Now, would you associate humble with God in human flesh? What religious system has at the center of their faith a God who is humble? Now, this is surprising because in this story, Jesus is not just humble. He is someone to be obeyed. He deserves our obedience. He is worthy of our worship. As, as we sang, he is the name above all names. He is the name. He has no rival. He has no equal. He is the name above all names. And he is the one is to, who is to be obeyed. And that's the point of this little interaction with um, Jesus and Mary, which is sort of a, I think it's kind of a comical little interaction. It has some real kind of interesting son-mother humor. So when the wine ran, in verse 3 it says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, that Mary, that's Mary, said to him, they have no wine. As in, Jesus, they have no wine. So I love Mary because she's just so, she's so blunt. She's a diagnostician. She says, you know, this wedding is headed for a crisis. Because when you run out of wine at a, a, a wedding like this in uh, Jesus' day, this was serious stuff. I mean, we have a few records of people filing lawsuits against a bride and a groom because the party just stank afterwards, and they ran out of wine. So this is a serious issue. So she says they have no wine. I love Mary. She's like my 80-year-old grandmother on my uh, father's side who said, Matt, I turned 80, and I've earned the right to say whatever I want. And for the rest of her life, she did. And it was usually... True, but sometimes not helpful. Anyway, but I love Mary. They have no wine. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, some people think that's really disrespectful of Jesus. He's kind of like lipping off to his mom. Like, Mom, just butt out. I got this. Well, actually, there's another time in the Gospel of John where Jesus also refers to his mother as woman. 
And it's a scene from John chapter 19 where he says, he's, tell, he's actually on the cross, he's dying on the cross, and he tells Mary, he points to his good friend John and says, John is going to be your son now. He's going to take care of you. So he says, woman, behold your son. It's very tender. It's actually sort of a, a thing of endearment, but, but the rest of it is also very clear. So Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is saying, look, Mary, you're my mom. I love you, but you don't understand my timing as the unique and only and unrivaled son of God. You don't always know what's best. And I'm just not going to do a miracle at the drop of the hat just because you want me to. So he says, look, my timing might not be your timing. Do you ever run into that sometimes with Jesus? His timing is not your timing. But then Mary, verse 5, he says, he, she tells the servants, who are the people running around with these trays of water, you know, they're running around, they're serving people. These would be like the lowest class of people. So just keep that in mind because that's going to be important later. She tells them, do whatever he tells you. I love that line because that is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Mary nails it. Do whatever he tells you. That's the Christian life. Do whatever Jesus tells you. And so they do. So in verse um, 7, Jesus says, he points to 20 or 30, um, he, he points to these six stone water jars that each hold 20 to 30 gallons. So that's somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. And he says, fill the jars with water. And so the servants, and they filled them up to the brim. And then he says, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. What are they doing? They're obeying Jesus. They're doing what he says. And they probably didn't understand all this, but, but they did it. But notice what happens next. So Jesus does this incredible miracle. He turns the water, not just into grape juice, that would have been pretty good, but he turns it into fermented wine. That's even better. He takes what happens in nature all the time, and he speeds up the process. Whoop. Let's just fast forward this. I do all the time. I do this all the time through the, a grapevine that I've made, but let's just make it go like that. So it becomes 120 to 180 gallons of wine. An incredible thing. But who knows about it? He manifests his glory. But to whom? Mary, his disciples, and the lowly servants, the poorest people, the ones that run around and serve the people at this wedding. Isn't that amazing? I mean, Jesus could have said, made a big announcement, okay, folks, we've got a crisis here. i got this under, hand, uh, under control. Uh, just a minute, you can line up. You're going to get the best wine you've ever had in your life. And then he says a long prayer, and then he says, be wined. And then it suddenly becomes wine, and everybody claps, and whoa, wow, that was amazing. But he doesn't do that. He does it all quietly behind the scenes. And the master of the ceremony doesn't even know. And the groom doesn't even know. And he tells the groom, you, this is amazing. You must have a private stash somewhere. And the groom's like, uh, yeah, I guess I do, you know. And he, he kind of takes the credit for it. He doesn't say anything. Why did Jesus do this? Because he's a God who is worthy of our worship, but he's also humble. We have a friend, a missionary friend named Pat Crayer. He's one of the missionaries we support at this church. He worked for 20 to 25 years 
in um, Muslim uh, majority countries. And he will tell you with tears in his eyes, he'll tell me, Matt, I've seen religious systems of the world. I've seen how they work. I've seen their good. I've seen their bad. But there is no God like our God because our God is humble. We have a humble God, an approachable God, a God who was made in the very, Jesus who was made in the very image of God, but humbled himself, Paul says in Philippians 2, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of one of those people carrying around the trays. He took the form of one of those sermons, servants because he's humble. That is truly astounding. So we have the host. Then we also have the purpose. What's the purpose for Jesus' mumu? What's the purpose for why we gather every Sunday and celebrate and worship and receive Eucharist? Well, look at verse 1. Back up to verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Wait a minute. Stop. I'm reading that. What's the third day? Because if you're actually following in the story in John chapter 1, it should be the fifth day. Because it says the next day, the next day, the next day, the next day. It should be the fifth day. What's the third day? Where did that come from? Well, here's what I think is going on and what John is trying to do. He's setting up the, this, not only this sign, what he calls a sign, but he's setting up the whole Gospel of John, the whole story of Jesus in the framework of the resurrection. So on the third day was a, a code phrase. We say it in our creed. We say it in the Nicene Creed, on the third day. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, when he's taught, summary, giving a summary of the faith, he said, on the third day. It says it at the end of John chapter 2. Jesus says, in, you can destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. What's the three days? Three days is a code word for the resurrection. One scholar says that this little phrase at the beginning of this story gives this story and the life of Jesus a resurrection aura. Or I prefer resurrection aroma. So you light a candle in your room or in your house. I have an apple cranberry candle that smells like apples and cranberries. And it's not overpowering. And it's like, I love apples and cranberries. And you just walk into the room and you breathe it in. It's got that apple cranberry aroma. I love that. The story of Jesus has a resurrection aroma. So the church has always understood it this way. So every Sunday, especially as Anglicans, but a great tradition, Christians, we, we, and, and Christians everywhere around the world, really, we believe that every Sunday service is a resurrection service. It's like a little mini Easter service. We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. No matter how dark it gets or how bad it gets, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, it's like this. Some Sundays, maybe if you're like me, you drag yourself here and you don't maybe really feel like being here. Maybe you felt beat up by the week. Maybe you feel really guilty for something you've done or not done. Maybe you feel like you've wandered off track. Maybe you feel like you're just really arrogant and you don't really want to listen to God. You, you pray, thy will be done, but you, you're like, I want to do my will. I really want to do my will. Or maybe you just feel emotionally dead or you feel spiritually dead. 
just feel dead inside. And what do we hear every Sunday? What do we say every Sunday at the high point of the Eucharistic prayer that Father Brett will just do in a few minutes? We say, Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We are breathing in the aroma of the resurrection. We come here and the risen Christ meets us and he feeds us and he brings us back to life again. We don't just get some tips for the week or some cheery outlook. We come alive through the power of the resurrection. We're worse than we thought. We're not just imperfect people who need a little improvement. We're dead people who need a resurrection. And that's what Jesus promises. This is our weekly spiritual moo-moo. There's a reason why we, the, the priest who celebrates, celebrates is called a celebrant. And why you will hear, we celebrate. He will say in the Eucharistic prayer, we celebrate. We are celebrating the power of the resurrection. So that's the purpose. So we have the host, we have the purpose. No, we need one more thing. We need the wine. The wine is what the host provides, or the hostess provides, to keep the party going, to give it life, to give it energy, to make it fun, to give it zest. Now, sometimes in the Bible, wine is associated with drunkenness. And every time it is, it's bad. Do not get drunk with wine. The alcohol industry worldwide is over a trillion dollars, and it wreaks havoc in families and systems and individual lives. So don't get me wrong. There is a danger to alcohol. But honestly, most times in the Bible, when you hear the word wine, it's a symbol of the presence of God and of celebration. So you heard Lisa read Amos chapter 9. Listen to this promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all hills will flow with it, and I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. Can you imagine being a Jewish believer and the one true God and hearing that and you're just, your heart just like, oh, when is that day going to come? Oh, Lord, bring that day when the mountains will drip with sweet wine. And Jesus shows up. And what does he do? He produces 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine. Think about the quantity. It's, I'm estimating, and no scholar will back me up on this because nobody's ever tried, so I am venturing in new territory. I bet, since it was a small town, there's probably a gallon of wine for every man and woman and child there at that wedding. So why? Is he promoting drunkenness? No. He's promoting his own lavishness, his own overflowingness. Chapter John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 16, just a chapter before, it says, from his fullness we have all received those, those jars filled to the brim. So they're like overflowing as they carry them to the master of ceremonies. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
Later it says in the Gospel of John, he gives his spirit without measure. When Jesus gives, you need grace, I will give you more grace than you know what to do with. Your sin is great, his grace is greater. But he's also doing something else. That promise from Amos and other Hebrew scripture texts that the mountains will drip with sweet wine, it is happening, people. It's happening. That wine, that overflowing wine, it's coming in the person of Jesus, Messiah. It's here. And notice the quality, too. It's the good wine. Verse 10, the master ceremony immediately recognizes this. Says, and he tells the groom, everyone, everyone serves the good wine first, but dude, nobody's like you. You saved the best wine till now. Of course, it's not the groom, it's Jesus. It's crazy good. Jesus is saying, I'm the source of the best wine, the wine that never runs out. So when we drink the wine as followers of Jesus, when we drink the wine during Holy Communion, we are participating, we are sharing in the cup that never ends and never runs dry. When I was pastoring out on Long Island for nine years, um, right before I left, there was a guy that had me over for dinner. He was sort of on the, the fringe of the church, um, and I had done some ministry work, especially with his son, and so he wanted to give me a gift, so he had this really nice dinner at his gorgeous home on the Long Island Sound, and he, he pulled out a bottle of wine, and he happened to mention casually, drop into the conversation, you know, this bottle of wine cost me $120. And I tasted it. And for a guy that's never had wine more than $9 worth and often drinks Flirty Bird from Aldi, is that what it's called? Um, the $2.99, or also called Two Buck Chuck, I thought to myself, this is really good. This is what I think wine is supposed to taste like. <laughs> you know, it's like when you have really good coffee and you go, oh, that's what coffee's supposed to taste like. So Jesus is saying, I'm the good wine. You think that stuff you're drinking, you think that success, you think that relationship that you gotta have, you think that prize, you think that money, you think that toy, you think that's gonna last? You think that's gonna satisfy you? That's like little kid stuff compared to what I can give. You're drinking two buck chuck, and no wonder you're getting a headache from all the sulfites. <laughs> Jesus didn't say that exactly, but it's implied. I'm the real thing, and I'm the wine that will never run out. Now, let me just say, some of you were raised in a Christian home, or maybe you've had some experiences that were just really negative, or maybe you're, by your own admission, you're not a believer, and you're, you're sort of checking church out, and you're like, but you don't think of Christianity as something that's like celebratory, that at its heart is this image of new wine. And one of the names for Jesus is the good wine, the best wine. And maybe you've had an experience that was so negative or it was so boring, it was so insipid, 
It was so bland that it just completely turned you off. Let me just ask you today, is it possible? Is it possible that you never really tasted the good wine? That maybe it was just sort of a concept in your head, but it never really, like, connected with your heart? The, the end of this passage says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Literally, a literal translation of that from the original language is the disciples believed or trusted into Jesus. Now, isn't that an interesting word? Into. Into, to me, suggests movement. When you move into something, you're moving. You're taking a step. You're not stagnant. You're not static. So maybe today, maybe during this service some point, or maybe during the prayer along the side, or maybe sometime this week, you will actually say, Lord Jesus, I have never really trusted into you. I know about you, and I've experienced things, but I have never trusted in you. I've never moved into that. I've never made a decision to take that step. Maybe you'll make that step this morning. Or maybe you've, you have tasted the good wine, but maybe it's just run out. Mary had diagnosed your problem. You have no wine. The joy, the spark, the celebration, the festival has just run out. What do you do then? Well, let me say what I think this passage says. That if that's the case, right now, right here, you are in the right place. You're in the right place. Because the best wine is here. The good wine is here. What do we say in, in, at the end? The priest says, feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. We are feeding on Jesus in the Eucharist. We're drinking the wine, the wine of the new covenant. Take and eat. Do we eat and drink because we're such good Christians? No, I eat and drink because I'm often a bad Christian. I'm often malnourished. I'm thirsty. I run out of wine. So Jesus says, come all who are thirsty. Come all who are brokenhearted. Come all who feel sad the wine has run out. Come all who are teetering on the edge of despair. Come all who have wept this week. Or maybe wept this morning or will weep this week. Come all who feel joyful. Because you want to give wine away, but how are you going to give wine away to a broken and violent world if you don't have the wine in yourself first? So come and drink. You are in the right place. Jesus the host is here. The aroma of the resurrection is here. The best wine is here. As it says in almost the last verse in the Bible, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life or the best wine without price. Come. The best wine is here. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.